Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in General History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts on the channel, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm really interested today to be speaking with two authors um, who wrote a book together that looks at how American comics from the start have reflected the white supremacist culture out of which they arose. Uh, The book and these two authors argue that superheroes and comic books in general are products of whiteness. Um, that both signals and hides its presence. In their book, titled Bandits, Misfits, and Superheroes, Whiteness and Its Borderlands in American Comics and Graphic Novels, which was published by the University of Mississippi Press in 2022, they provide a sober assessment of some famous creators of comics, their role in perpetuating racism, um, and generally work to identify how whiteness has been defined, transformed, and occasionally undermined over the course of 80 years of American comic book history. So I'm really interested to speak to Dr. Joseph Benson and Dr. Doug Singson about their book. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, good to be here. So to start us off, um, I was wondering if you could each introduce your individual backgrounds um, and then explain how you came together to write this book. Sure, Uh, I can uh, start. This is uh, Joe. so I, you know, my undergraduate degree and my master's degree was primarily in creative writing. Um, my literature, uh, my uh, uh, PhD uh, at University of South Florida, I focused a lot on uh, contemporary literature uh, and African American literature. And toward the tail end of my dissertation, I started to explore certain aspects of uh, whiteness studies, which was kind of a relatively new and uh, underexamined, under-theorized um, discipline. Um, and my first gig out of grad school was at uh, Ohio State, and that's where I started to kind of get into comics and um, started reading some really uh, benchmark uh, comics that paved the way toward uh, thinking about comics as a literature, uh, such as Watchmen, Dark Knight Returns, uh, Art Spiegelman's Mouse, um, and really uh, had the idea then that um, that this, this that, that there was a real opportunity opportunity uh, to uh, look at comics uh, through the lens of uh, whiteness studies. So I kind of you know put that in my back pocket. I wound up getting a, a tender track job at University of Wisconsin Parkside to teach contemporary literature and uh, creative writing. And uh, published, uh, I believe it was uh, two uh, two books in that uh, in- interval that did not have to do with comics, uh, but had more and more to do with whiteness studies. And as I kind of uh, got my bearing with regard to uh, whiteness studies and published a couple of couple of articles, I thought, well, you know, I, th- I feel confident enough to to take a look at um, comics. So I wrote up a uh, a conference uh, presentation. Uh, about uh, the comic uh, Watchmen, 
and presented it at um, a really great conference in Chicago called PCA, ACA, Pop Culture Association, American Culture Cultural uh, Association. And what, an acquisition, acquisition editor from University of Mississippi Press, which is the foremost uh, publisher of uh, comics scholarship, uh, saw my presentation, approached me and asked me if I wanted to do a book, which any academic knows the answer to that is always yes, even if one is not quite ready, which I wasn't, but, uh, but I told him yes. So I uh, started to put together a, a, a book proposal and um, I went out uh, one day and, and had a, uh, had a beer at, at, a, at, a, at a pub with some, some colleagues of mine, one of which was a new um, art history professor who was just hired by Parkside. And we got to talking and I got to telling him about this book proposal. And, and he told me he just happened to have written his dissertation um, uh, on uh, comics. So one thing led to another. And this was, of course, Doug, uh, who uh, who's the co-writer of uh, the book. And um, one thing led to another and, and we wound up um, collaborating and um and writing the book together, so that's kind of that's kind of how I see it. I'm, I'm not sure if Doug sees it the same way or not. Uh, well, no, that is that's definitely how it happened, and um, I think it was a very good combination because you, you know, I was cursorily acquainted with whiteness studies um, and knew more about comics, and I think you were kind of the reverse. So. I, I think we, you know, if either of us had written this book on their own, I think it would have been much weaker. Um, so just to kind of backtrack a little bit, uh, I did my PhD in art history at the City University of New York Graduate Center uh, and focused on modern and contemporary art. Uh, and, you know, it's uh, and as Joe mentioned, I did my dissertation on comics and specifically on the the kind of the way that alternative comics, which are sort of any comics that aren't yeah, the term doesn't actually quite make sense anymore. But in the 90s, uh, 80s and 90s, really, it described comics that were not participating in any of the mainstream genres, which kind of go back to the pulp novels of the early 20th century so anything that wasn't like superheroes sci-fi horror or other similar genres was alternative and alternative comics sort of set themselves in opposition to mainstream comics that was how they positioned themselves and the 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 main argument of my dissertation was that although there was some truth to that they also borrowed tremendously from mainstream comics and so it was i mean you know, it, it, it was a very ambiguous, ambivalent relationship. Uh, and I mean, generally, like my my interests are mostly in areas where the avant, the, like, you know, modernism or postmodern art or the avant garde rubs elbows with mass culture. Uh, that's kind of where I'm what I'm drawn to. Uh, so comics is a good fit for that. Um and, uh, yeah, so, I mean, you know, I was a new hire at Parkside, met Joe at uh, a neighborhood uh, a meetup for Parkside faculty who lived in Milwaukee. We got to talking. I mean, much like he said, I thought, you know, his proposal sounded like a great idea um, and that, you know, it was just so relevant to, to comics uh, and it was work that needed to be done. 
Uh, but I could kind of see that, you know, he, he had a fantastic idea, but, uh, and, you know, a, a bunch of comics that he wanted to write about, mostly from like the 80s and 90s, which seemed like great topics. But I wanted to push the historical parameters back to the beginning of comics because I could, I mean, you know, like Watchmen does a fantastic job of deconstructing the, the white frame of the superhero. But I wanted to also look at, you know, where that white frame originated, um, you know, in the 30s and 40s, because I thought that would just deepen the um, deepen the analysis that Joe had already staked out. So um, I asked, I I pitched him like the next day on, you know, that that we should write it together. And I I didn't think he was going to do it because he had it was such a good idea. I didn't think he'd want to share it with a a co-author. But um, to my very happy surprise, or semi surprise, he he agreed, and that, and then we we got started. Amazing. Um, well, it's definitely the book reads as a uh, very helpful combination of these things. It doesn't feel kind of lopsided one way or the other, um, which I must say, as a reader, is really helpful. There's art history and there's writing and there's history and there's modern things. Um, it feels very complete. So it sounds like it was a good match kind of from the beginning. Um, And so I now want to kind of run through some of the main ideas and themes that come up through the book. Um, And I'm glad, Doug, that you mentioned this idea of kind of pushing back to the beginning of comics, because that's where I'd really like to start. Um, What do we need to know about whiteness in the time in which comics came into existence? Uh, Yes, I'll take this one because I... um, uh... That was my one of my areas uh, that I, I wrote on, and it's it's very interesting. I mean, you know, um, the American comic book industry came into being in the late '30s, which was at the tail end of a massive wave of immigration from Southern Europe and Eastern Europe, uh, and a majority of the early comic book creators were Jewish, uh, and so and you know their families had been part of that wave, that mass wave of immigration. And um, the new immigrants were, were not coming from Northern Europe. Uh, so they, you know, th- there was a traditional white wasp establishment in the, the United States, which was the sort of the upper social caste of the country. Uh, and the, the new European immigrants, you know, there, there was a lot of controversy over where they fit in America's racial hierarchy, which had wasps at the top um, and African-Americans at the bottom, essentially, with um, Hispanic and Asian Americans also, you know, maybe positioned not not marginalized quite so aggressively as black people were. Uh, and one of the seminal texts of uh, whiteness studies is David Rodiger's How the Irish Became White, which tracks how the arrival of Irish immigrants in the mid 1800s were, you know, they were initially perceived as not being white, which is sort of a strange concept looking back on it now. Um, but I mean, they were considered not white. Uh, and as they were sort of, um, positioned as what Rodiger calls racially in between. So not white, but also not, I mean, the term people of color didn't exist at the time, but, you know, just sort of 
somewhat anachronistically using it. They were also, they were not considered on the same level as black people. Um, and, you know, so they, they had, there's a lot of tension between the Irish immigrants and the wasps who were above them in America's racial caste system and the black, Asian and Hispanic people who were below them in the caste system. Uh, now, by the early 1900s, the, you know, they don't stay there, though. They sort of gradually assimilate into whiteness. And by the time you get the next big wave of immigrants arriving in the late 1800s, early 1900s, the Irish are now maybe not fully perceived as white, but they are definitely there. They are now above the, the status level of the newcomers. And so, you know, I think what Rodiger did so well was to show how whiteness is not a stable concept. It's it has evolved in response to the waves of new immigrants arriving in the United States. And so that that was the the racial context of whiteness at the time that comics were um, were launched. And the people, you know, the people who built the industry were. Jewish, not, I don't know, I don't think any of them were first generation immigrants, like they themselves had not immigrated to the United States, but by and large, their parents had. Um, so they, and so they were, you know, they were assimilating further into American society and into whiteness than their parents had, but it was still not at all a, a secure, um, a secure status. Uh, and but so what that means is that they tended to they they downplayed their Jewishness. So, you know, there's um, Superman, for instance, there are a lot of there's a lot of subtext of the Jewish immigrant story in Superman. He's fleeing a, a planet which is self-destructing, much as Europe was sort of self-destructing in the 30s. His name, his his like um, Kryptonian name is Kalel. Uh, his father is Jor-El, which both are kind of Hebrew sounding names. Um, and, you know, he, when he lands on Earth, he is able to assimilate as a human being because he looks like a human being, but he has this secret origin that only he and, you know, maybe, I guess, and his parents know about, or step, you know, foster parents, which, I mean, is sort of similar to the, and that very kind of aptly describes the in-between racial status of Jewish immigrants who were, you know, their skin tone was white. But um, and, you know, that that in turn prompted some fears about, you know, that they that they could pass for white among among the WASP establishment. Um, You know, so there was the potential for Jewish immigrants to assimilate into American society. But there were also barriers that were being created to that assimilation. But so they kind of so the, that narrative is there in Superman's storyline, but it's also it's not explicit. It's very much like a subtext um, that people at the time didn't really notice. I mean, it wasn't until decades later that anyone started, you know, sort of remarking on this, this subtext. Um, but so I think, you know, the, 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 the in-between nature of the first generation of Jewish uh, car, um, comic book artists and writers is is as you said before i mean it's both present and not present in in the works they created so that's a really helpful introduction to the kind of general context in which comics are created and of course superman the sort of iconic probably not quite first but certainly to a non-expert in comics often seems like the first um but one thing that you both talk about in the book is another genre uh, the western 
and that this is also a genre that has quite far back origins um, and even still exists to this day in ways that are both traditional and being reimagined. Um, and you show that uh, this genre was kind of treated differently in some ways, or at least the race, racial aspects were seen differently in this particular genre. Um, and this was particularly noticeable with the comics code. So I was wondering if you could explain for us kind of what the comics code w- was and then how racism, how it shows how racism was understood differently in different genres of comics. Sure, I can take that. Um, so the comics code would probably start with a psychologist by the name, by the name of uh, Frederick Wortham, um, who published a book called The Seduction of the Innocent in 1954, um, which really was was very, very critical of uh, comics. He um, almost completely blamed uh, juvenile delinquency uh, on uh, comics. Uh, he felt that, um, well, and, and it's also good to know that at this time, uh, comics were just so uh, so popular that um, just a, just a very high percentage of uh, young people um, had their hands on comics, and um, and there was a general sense in the fifties, leading you know into um, into the sixties uh, that 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 uh, the the youth were some high that there was a cultural sea change going on that was was uh, viewed as anti authoritarian. And uh, Wortham blamed comics uh, very, I think, unfairly. But he he got the, he got the country. He he sort of whipped up this uproar about comics, um, and just any chance he got, uh, he would uh, he would just get on the soapbox and say that that comics were evil and that they were causing all kinds of uh, horrendous things uh, among our children, including suicide and violence and. Uh, all forms of um, juvenile delinquency, and this resulted in a in a congressional investigation. And the result of that congressional investigation was not a kind of uh, legal uh, regulation of the comic book uh, in- industry, but a self regulation, a sort of self regulated code. Uh, in the comics industry called the Comics Code that for a while Wortham was kind of running. And he had a group of people who would who were looking, if somebody wanted to publish a comic at this time, they would have to submit it to the Comics Code, which was this group. This group would read through it and they would either give it a literal stamp on the cover, cover uh, notifying parents that uh, the comic uh, was um, was okay for their children to read, or they would not, in which case uh, they, the comic would not get the stamp, uh, in some cases not get published. And a lot of uh, comics publishers went out of business because of this. Um, some of the different uh, parameters um, or criteria by which these uh, regulators uh, would either give a stamp of approval or would not would be if a comic was uh, anti-authoritarian in any way, was uh, extremely violent in any way, um, had what they would call unnecessary uh, kind of racial uh, themes, uh, any kind of uh, images of uh, sex or sexuality uh, would certainly not get the stamp of uh, approval. And let me just, as an aside, say that Frederick Wortham was not a monster. He actually did a lot of really great things 
when it came to um, promoting racial equality in the U.S. Um, he was instrumental in uh, the Brown first Board of Education uh, le- legislation. So he was not a monster. I, we just happen to think that he got it wrong with regard to comics. Um, and uh, he, he especially had it out for superhero comics. And he, he was one of the first ones to claim that Bat and Robin, Batman and Robin were a kind of a, um, a gay duo and were promoting homosexuality. Um, he thought that superhero comics in general promoted homosexuality. And so uh, because of this, com- uh, superhero comics kind of dipped in, in popularity. And certainly, as, as you alluded to, Western comics in some ways filled that vacuum. Uh, and- Joe, actually, before, Joe, sorry, go ahead, before yeah. you go on, to, I, I want to add one other thing about Wortham before you segue into Western comics, if that's OK. Sure, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, Wortham is an absolutely fascinating character. Um, And as Joe said, you know, so in addition to what Joe mentioned, he also, you know, his his academic background was in the the Frankfurt School. And I don't and he considered himself a Marxist. I don't remember the details of his connection with them, but you can, you know, his critique of comics uh, owes a lot to the Frankfurt School's critique of mass culture uh, as, you know, a, um, you know, uh, which they framed as being part of the culture industry, which was a capitalist construct um, that sought to kind of indoctrinate um, the, the, the publics of Western democracies. And so, you know, he his he approached comics as belonging to this culture industry, which is also it's I mean, certainly comics were a for profit business. But I think one thing he missed was that they were um, pretty heavily stigmatized, actually, um, and that they, you know, they were a pop they were a popular form, although they were a you know, a, it was comics were certainly a, a capitalist industry Um they were speaking to, you know, they, they were not kind of the, the elite or officially sanctioned culture industry. They were kind of an insurgent branch within the culture industry, which is just not something that was. And, you know, the Frankfurt School really couldn't grapple with that kind of positionality. Um, so I think, you know, this is the, the, the shortcomings of the, the, the Frankfurt School analysis of the culture industry kind of play out in Wortham's attack on comics. Yeah, and I think it'd be helpful to mention sort of Horkheimer and Adorno and their criticism of uh, popular culture and mass culture. And yeah, and I think a lot of academics now believe that there are insights to be gained by studying uh, low culture, which, of course, Horkheimer and Adorno probably would just assume there it, you know, it didn't exist. But uh, anyway, so, yeah, so Westerns didn't really feel much of the brunt or as much of the brunt uh, of the comics code. And, you know, I think it's, it's, it's questionable as to why. But one thing that we argue in the book um, is, that, um, is that Westerns have an interesting origin with respect to some of the more prominent type of characters and figures that we see uh, emerging from early Western comics. One is the gunfighter. Uh, sort of bandit gunslinger, and the other one is is what we call the quote white uh, Indian or the man who knows Indians. 
the bandit gunslinger uh, largely stems from uh, figures uh, from the uh, American uh, South uh, just after the Civil War who rejected uh, Reconstruction and the imposing of Northern laws uh, to end slavery. These were uh, white uh, men who rejected those laws, uh, who sort of went on the run, um, started robbing trains and becoming famous before it, such as Jesse James. Uh, So much of comics uh, has these sort of gunslinger characters who kind of stem from uh, this Reconstruction era notion of the gunslinger, sometimes very directly with regard to some of the comics of of Jesse James. Um, Another very common figure is the white Indian. You might think of the historical figure, Kit Carson, uh, who uh, shared some cultural characteristics with Native Americans, uh, but was quite obviously and always uh, on the side of the U.S. uh, white uh, U.S. uh, government. So these two prominent figures uh, within the uh, Western genre really weren't the kind of figures um, who Wortham was going after. Certainly these figures were not promoting uh, homosexuality to Wortham. The kind of violence that was enacted in Western comics was usually uh, geared towards Native Americans, which is odd that Wortham did not see this as problematic since he was very much um, aware of kind of violence against women and uh, and at least ostensibly was against um uh, violence against uh, African Americans and, and things like that, but but um, but we but we felt that, that 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 the Western comics really embodied a kind of traditional uh, hegemonic masculine spirit that Wortham probably thought was very healthy uh, instead of uh, problematic, as he saw uh, superhero comics, horror comics, uh, comics that he thought were overly sexual. Um, so I, I think that that's why probably the Western filled the vacuum um, that uh, was left behind due to the uh, kind of diminished sales of superhero comics, which uh, was a result of the comics code. I found that personally really interesting um, that because there are a lot of pretty at least to today's eyes, obvious problems with Westerns um, as a genre, both in and beyond comics. Um, and yet it didn't run into the same sorts of problems. So thank you for explaining that kind of practically and also for adding in the sort of philosophical aspect as well. Um, And so then to move onwards in our sort of historical tour of um, how race and racism was treated in American comics, uh, the Black Panther comics, uh, which perhaps, again, to today's listeners, sound very much like not racist at all. maybe a change in how race is dealt with in comics. And yet you both show pretty clearly in the book that particularly in the beginning of the Black Panther um, comics, even though the main characters were visibly not white, there were still some pretty clear racist tropes um, and ideas that were embedded throughout these comics. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of this seeming tension? Yeah, I can talk about that. So I think, I mean, first off, I think that there are some pretty overwhelmingly racially positive aspects of Black Panther. I mean, he was portrayed as being a, you know, highly principled ruler, 
uh, you know, he's he's the king of the the Africa, the fictional African nation of Wakanda. Um, and I mean, the thing that and so he's you know he's portrayed in mostly in positive terms. Uh, and I mean, one of the most striking things about it is that Wakanda is a technologically super advanced nation, um, and you know, which is co- and that completely cuts against the traditional association of Africa with primitivism, which was a discourse that has very deep roots in European culture. I mean, I'm not even going to attempt to summarize the academic literature on it. Uh, but, you know, the idea of an African nation as being technologically hyper-advanced really, I mean, just on the surface, completely contradicts the, na- the, the, the narrative of Africa as, quote, primitive. Now, on the other hand, there are, so it's, it's, I would say, you know, the primary features of the Black Panther were a tremendous step in the direction of positive portrayals of Black people. Uh, but there, there were a number of things that kind of undermined it. And I don't think, I think that it's important to hold the contradiction between those things and not to let one of them sort of trump the other, because they're both very much present. And I mean, I think if you just look at the history of Black Panther, it bears out the fact that it did absolutely have a strong positive effect on um, Black readers of comic books, um, who, you know, saw, and many of them have talked about, you know, Black Panther as being a really positive image that, that was inspiring to them. Um, but I also, I think, and that's kind of the, you know, Black Panther has become like a global cultural icon since Marvel's Black Panther movie. Uh, and so I think, you know, the idea of the Black Panther as a positive portrayal of Blackness has gotten, you know, virtually all of the attention that's been given to the character. And I think it's important not to lose the fact that there were some contradictory elements within that. Uh, And so, you know, for instance, one of them is that the technological advancement of Wakanda was due to the presence of a natural resource, um, uh, a super strong metal that had um, was deposited in Wakanda by an asteroid. And uh, Joe, what, do you remember the name of the what the metal yeah. is? I'm blank. What yeah, is it? Vibra- vibranium. Thank you, vibranium. Um, so you know, I mean, there's that kind of plays into the narrative that of Africa as you know. Well, a couple. There's a couple of different narratives there. I mean, there is the classic primitivist narrative because the technological advancement is due to a natural phenomenon, and there's also the more sort of political historical narrative in which, um, which actually I don't think the term existed then, but it's called the uh, the oh, what is it the resource curse? Uh, the idea that um, uh, developing nations that have access to extensive natural resources can actually have their politics sort of distorted by those resources. But in any case, it's, it's, you know, that the, the advancement is due to something in the natural environment and not to the intelligence or capability of black people. Although at the same time, it, it does also show Wakandans as being quite intelligent and, um, you know, uh, highly skilled. So it's, there's, there's, there's contradictions. The other big contradiction is that the techno, the technological advancement of Wakanda is paired with very, is still paired with primitivist imagery. So, um, 
you know, of like tribal dances and superstitions and all, and all of this. Uh, it's also, I mean, Wakanda is a hidden nation. It's hidden itself from the West, which is kind of an implicit rebuke of colonialism, although colonialism is really not mentioned anywhere in the comic. Um, that, so that they sort of dodge that issue. But the idea of a hidden African nation is something that appeared a lot in primitivist tropes of like the, you know, lost civilizations, which typically were actually, I mean, and these appear in in novels, in comic books, in movies, there's a massive pop, pop culture phenomenon. And these lost African nations were typically led by white rulers. Uh, and, um, you know, so in that, that they were extremely racist constructs where the underlying message was basically that there was that Africa in some sense belonged to white people. Um, even though that was historically could not be further from the truth, it was a way of, I, I would say it was a way of claiming white dominion. Uh, and again, I mean, Black Panther it, it uses it, but it reverses it by having it be not white ruled, but actually completely black ruled. But, you know, there, it, 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 there, there is also kind of a residual heart of darkness um, idea behind Wakanda as well. So again, like, and I don't think that these negate the, the, the positive messages that Black Panther creates about blackness. It just complicates them a little bit. And I, I would just add uh, also that you'll you'll start to see, or maybe you know you you did in the book, is that in, in, in many instances of comics that we looked at, um, there would be some aspect of, of of the comics that were progressive, that were in, you know that were interesting, that were and sometimes even anti racist. And then there would be some aspect of the very same comic uh, that actually perpetuated racism. And so it, a lot of these comics are kind of messy in a- analyzing, you know, which sort of which uh, way they fall. And this was one example of that as well. So that's and, a perfect, just, oh. perfect segue, because mm-hmm. I'd love to ask you about another comic that you discuss in the book that is also, it seems, kind of messy. How about the X-Men? Yeah, I, I can talk about the X-Men. Um, so, you know, Stan Lee created um, uh, the X-Men and um, he basically, you know, wanted to create a comic that reflected uh, some of the some of the cultural wars that were going on in the U.S., uh, at the time. Um, so his way of doing that was to create a, a group, a, a, a team of uh, young people um, who, were, who, who were what he called mutants. And via their uh, mutancy, he would uh, be able to uh, kind of capture, like I said, some of the um, cultural problems going on with racial inequality. Um, <clears throat> The problem was, is that the characters that he chose uh, to represent minorities were obviously white and not only white, but they were uh, oftentimes uh, wealthy, wealthy white kids who had all kinds of different privileges. And in fact, uh, their um, mutant characteristics uh, empowered them. Um, So this was a very kind of poor representation 
of the kind of very serious racial conflicts that were going on uh, in the U.S. Nevertheless, uh, you know, his uh, uh, his attempts at at bringing some of these uh, situations, um, you know, through uh, comics, I suppose, can be applauded in in, uh, some ways. Um, but, but, but just that, that sort of basic idea that, that the kind of mutancy, uh, that his characters, uh, em- embodied, um, were, were not representative of some of the issues. And I would take it even one step further, which is that the mutancy that the characters in X-Men, or at least in the original 66, um, uh, issue, uh, X-Men, their, um, mutant characteristics were biological, uh, they were not socially constructed, and so their differences were biological differences, which actually, uh, to to my and and, and, and Doug's mind, um, really kind of were throwback ideas of what racial difference uh, and sort of biological determinism uh, were uh, before uh, before progressives started to realize that uh, a lot of these racial characteristics that people ascribed um, to minorities and compared to white people. Um, were exactly that, were, were social constructs that, that were created in order to justify uh, racism um, and driven by economic, more driven by economic interests. Um, so uh, that, that, that's really in a, in a kind of nutshell um, uh, our, our uh, strongest critique of uh, X-Men was, I would say. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, and kind of yeah, on and I would this add, idea, I mean, one... oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, one interesting kind of addendum to that is that uh, X-Men and Black Panther were both uh, initially drawn by the same artist, Jack Kirby, who uh, had also been the artist who created Captain America. So you can and who was, I believe, a second generation Jewish immigrant. So you can just kind of see the through line running through this whole period. I mean, Kirby is I mean, he's a titan in mainstream comics. I mean, one of the most influential people in creating the, the genre and, you know, you can kind of just see his fingerprints everywhere. Thank you for bringing that in. That's a really, that's definitely one of the things that comes through in the book is these threads and these generations. Um, and as with many other areas of culture and of politics, when we look at mass media in the United States, the Vietnam War had a pretty big impact on comics. Um, and in your book, you both talk about uh, the Vietnam War impact not just on comics, but on portrayals and discussions of whiteness in comics. Can you tell us a bit about that, please? Uh, yeah, I can take this one. Um, so, you know, the uh, th- there was a, a history of American superheroes as being cheerleaders for U.S. war efforts, starting with World War II, which for the the Jewish artists and writers, you know, World War II was personal to them because, you know, it, one of its main features was the fight against Nazism, which they saw as, you know, obviously being a massive threat to the world Jewish population. Uh, and so they actually started, you know, putting anti-Nazi stories into the comics um, before Pearl Harbor, uh, you know, when the general mood of the country was isolationist. Um, And, you know, so I think, you know, I mean, World War II is kind of, it has a central place in U.S. historical narratives. It's the good war. Uh, And, you know, when World War II segued into the Cold War, 
uh, American comic books maintained their position of support for U.S. foreign policy. Uh, and, you know, in the 50s, this was, I mean, you know, you, you could argue about the, the, the ethics of this, but it was relatively uncontroversial. That changes in the 60s with Vietnam. Uh, and initially, I mean, you know, con American comic books were very supportive of the war. Uh, Iron Man was uh, created in the early 60s. And his origin story is that he was a U.S. weapons manufacturer who, you know, and who becomes Iron Man when he is kidnapped by an evil Chinese scientist in Vietnam. He's gone to Vietnam to personally deliver a brand new extra lethal weapon to American forces there who are. And there's no sign of any kind of dissatisfaction among U.S. soldiers. There's no sign that um, there was massive opposition to the U.S. presence in Vietnam. Um, it's just a simple Cold War narrative of the good Americans against the evil communists. And he gets captured by a, a, you know, a Chinese communist villain and create, you know, and then builds the, he's an engineer, so he builds the Iron Man costume um, to escape, uh, you know, as, as a, uh, which he then does. Uh, and, you know, so you, you can see there, I mean, that's, you know, the, the Marvel was extremely supportive of the Vietnam War, but as the 60s persisted and the war became more and more controversial, especially among young people, and Marvel prided itself on being read not just by young kids and adolescents, but also by high school and college students. That was actually kind of the key to its ascendance in the market, was that it, it held on to its readers further into adulthood, in, at least into the beginning of adulthood, than its main rival DC did. So when, you know, high school and college students start turning against the war en masse, uh, this presents a problem for Marvel, as well as possibly, I mean, there might have been some just sort of moral considerations as well, but I think the market considerations were were quite important for them. And so, you know, and what what precipitates it, it's hard to say exactly the cause for this. I mean, I haven't found any sources documenting that this is why Marvel started being more critical of the war, but um, readers started writing in and Marvel liked to publish readers' letters and they're questioning the war, um, especially in Captain America, uh, I mean, in, in Iron Man and in Captain America and in other Marvel comic lines. And this then starts getting reflected in the behavior of the characters. They start questioning the war, which is kind of awkward for, especially for Iron Man and Captain America, because Iron Man is a weapons manufacturer and Captain America is the personification of the United States. Um, but they start, and, you know, so what happens in the, and, you know, this is kind of building. And then in the early seventies, they have a massive, what can only be described as an identity crisis as they, they reject the war. Tony Stark renounces the arms industry. He says he's only going to build, you know, machines for peace. Uh, and Captain America temporarily gives up the uniform with the flag on it. Now, this doesn't last a massively long amount of time. It's a few years. And as, you know, when the Vietnam War ends, they fairly quickly revert to their sort of standard identities. But you can really see how the, you know, there were major contradictions created in the Vietnam War that were um, between the historical roots of the genre, um, its traditional political positions, and it's it's young readership and also just the the what I think was the pretty clear immorality 
of of the war um, to create one of what I think is one of the most interesting periods in U.S. comics. I certainly was quite surprised uh, to read that Captain America gave up his shield and that Tony Stark, the weapons manufacturer, was against the war. Um, So certainly learning about it now, um, I found it quite interesting. Um, So we've kind of touched on some obviously very famous writers, um, illustrators, comic books. um, And I want to sort of pick up on one that you both, I believe, have already mentioned, Watchmen. How now that we have sort of a basis of how whiteness was portrayed in a lot of ways um, in comics, how does Watchmen, therefore, as you mentioned already, deconstruct, complicate, and challenge the idea of whiteness and superheroes? Yeah, I can take this one on. So, um, yeah, Watchmen was the very first uh, uh, primary source that I analyzed that that uh, led to the led to the book. And uh, when I when I first uh, read Watchmen, I had a lot of these ideas about what, you know, what whiteness was. Um, I had published a couple of articles um, looking at some different contemporary literature. I think I published an article about Raymond Carver, um, and I think maybe one more. And I was interested in this notion of uh, uh, double consciousness, W.E.B. Du Bois's notion of double consciousness, and and really what what marked the African-American uh, was what he said was it was this kind of split consciousness uh, whereby African-Americans think of themselves both as both as white and then also as something uh, other than white, as American and, and something other uh, than American. And I think that we can extend this notion of uh, double consciousness to um to uh, all, pretty much all minorities in uh, the U.S. And I was also interested in Gloria Anzaldúa's notion of the borderlands, um, which it, which that that concept, that theory, made it uh, made it in, into the book. And she talked about how a a Latinx person in the U.S. existed on a borderland, a borderland of language, uh, a borderland of race, and she also happened to be. A, um, a, um, a queer woman of color. And so she said she also existed on a kind of uh, a kind of sexual and gendered borderland. Well, I started thinking about, OK, if whiteness is a social construction, um, in, 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 in other words, there's no sort of, you know, biological route uh, to it that, that, that would justify white supremacy. And non-whiteness is defined by this notion of a borderland or a splint, splintered consciousness. Then perhaps whiteness we might think of uh, is the actual denial of a uh, split consciousness or a double consciousness. And so that that was kind of a, a, a working definition for me of, of, of whiteness when I approached Watchmen. And I also had this idea when I was thinking about comics and particularly superheroes. Why do superheroes wear masks? I remember posting something to Facebook one time, um, which is not usually uh, a a way that I research. But I happened to, I don't know, I guess I was bored one day and I I posted a a question to Facebook. Why do superheroes wear masks? And about 50 of my friends, you know, commented on it. Well, this is why, this is why, this is why. So I I had this this question in, in mind. 
And these two kind of strands of thought met very abruptly and kind of profoundly in Watchmen, where I saw that many of the superheroes in Watchmen um, who donned the mask were hiding some kind of fractured consciousness, whether it was a whether it was a racial consciousness. In other words, they were trying to pass as white whether it was some kind of um, sexual consciousness where there's a couple of characters who are sort of in, 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 in the closet um, or some other kind of fractured consciousness. And so what I saw the characters doing um, were sort of becoming superheroes in order to mask their uh, fractured consciousness in order to be white, essentially. And several of the characters in, in there are overtly racist overtly homophobic, overtly uh, misogynistic, overtly nationalistic. So I really saw these characters as being very transparently, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, passing themselves off as white when really what they were doing um, was was sort of hiding this fractured consciousness. And I, I feel like uh, the creators of uh, Watchmen, Alan Moore and others, uh, were doing this as a way to deconstruct the, he- the superhero, but I saw it as a way to actually deconstruct whiteness. Fascinating. Thank you for explaining that. Um, and it brings me kind of really nicely, this idea particularly of masks, to a concept uh, towards the in the second half of your book called reskinning. So you talk about reskinning, and can I ask you to kind of explain to us what it is, and perhaps illustrate it with kind of an example of an attempt that maybe doesn't achieve the aims, and then contrast that perhaps with an attempt that does. Sure, I can jump in here, and, and, and Doug can 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 follow up if he if if he likes, just because I I, I wrote the chapter on reskinning. Uh, that that term actually, um, we came by that term in another unusual way. It wasn't Facebook, but in, in, in the, uh, we came by that term um, at a conference. Uh, it was a PCA ACA conference as well, and one of the um, uh, one of the members who were listening to one of our presentations um, mentioned that term. Uh, as 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 basically a term for when um, a either DC or Marvel or some some comic book um, uh, group uh, basically supplanted a white superhero with a black superhero. Uh, so, for example, Green Lantern, uh, there was a black Green Lantern. Um, or Iron Man, there was a black Iron Man. And this happened, I think, primarily in the 80s, but I think even Green Lantern might have been gone even back to the late 70s. But the problem there was um, what, in this case, DC and Marvel did, is all they did was replace the white superhero with the black superhero. And usually this, the case was that the white superhero was undergoing some problem or some issue wherein uh, he could no longer sort of carry on his duties. So they brought in the black superhero to replace him, to replace him. And then eventually the black superhero had these issues and then they brought in the white superhero. And so they, and, and they really did nothing to change the kind of cultural context of the comic book. It was really just kind of slotting in 
the uh, black superhero for the white superhero without changing any of the any of the issues of the book or or or, or really dealing with race uh, in uh, in any way. Doug, did you want to add anything to that? Uh, nope, that was good. Sorry, just uh, fumbling for the unmute button there. Okay. But, uh, no, okay. I mean, I think I think you you nailed it. I guess I would go back to Watchmen for what for a second, which is just to say that I, I think you know Alan Moore was really intentional about creating characters in Watchmen who were versions of the classic superhero figures as part of the the deconstructive moves that he made there so there's a character so there's you know Rorschach is loosely is, is you know roughly equivalent to Batman um, Dr. Manhattan is you know sort of um, in in the same ballpark as Superman and so on and then showing how and I mean they can deconstruct I would say many different aspects of those characters um, including their their relation to whiteness. So he's really just sort of picking apart the superhero genre. So that then is reskinning and a perhaps not very successful type of it, right? Just replacing the white superhero with a black superhero who often also was sort of interim, which kind of creates its own problems for any sort of agency. Um, can you tell us about a successful version of it, perhaps? Sure. Uh, and uh, so um, Captain America, you could argue, uh, underwent this kind of uh, reskinning. Doug, can you remember the, the name of the, the creator of, of uh, Red, Red, White, and Black? Truth, Red, White, and Black. Uh, last name is Morales, I believe. I'm blanking. Is it Robert Morales? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So he, yeah. So here was an example of a comic that that went much farther than previous reskinnings did, because what it did is went back to the origin story of Captain America, and basically presented this narrative whereby the super soldier serum. That, uh, uh, that Steve Rogers takes in order to become Captain America was first tested on black subjects, not unlike what went on in the Tuskegee uh, syphilis uh, experiments, uh, whereby um, a number of, um, of uh, black uh, subjects were given placebos and pretty much allowed to die, which was considered a sort of ter- terrible bioethical um uh, 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 you know, a miscarriage of uh, me- medicalization. Well, in the comic, a number of these uh, black uh, subjects, who I think were were in the military, die of the of of, of the serum. Um, they they literally explode. Uh, however, one of them does not die, and that is Isaiah Bradley. And in fact, the super soldier serum works on Isaiah Bradley, and he becomes the first Captain America. Um, well, I actually think that Steve Rogers was was um, came not long after um, uh, um, Isaiah Bradley was given the serum, but 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 uh, Bradley did not know of of Captain America. 
but once he did find out about Captain America, he uh, was able to procure the Captain America suit. And um, he was basically given a mission within the comic um, to if infiltrate uh, Nazi Europe uh, during the reign of Hitler. And he freed some um, concentration camp uh, uh, prisoners and had had a uh, basically a successful mission. But when he returned to the U.S., uh, he was uh, prisoned for stealing the Captain America costume um, and was imprisoned for life. Uh, in the comic, Captain America finds this out. He's absolutely outraged, and he goes to visit Isaiah Bradley, who has since got out of jail but has been basically infantilized uh, by his time in prison. And, uh, and what, what this basically suggests is that there's nothing special about Steve Rogers other than his whiteness. And this is a kind of perfect definition of privilege, uh, of a particularly white privilege and of uh, superheroes and their kind of, um, uh, you know, white, whiteness, they're sort of incidental uh, 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 whiteness. Uh, uh, that, 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 that nothing about them was necessarily special uh, except for the fact that uh, they're white. So this, you know, this, this, this comic really um, did a lot more than simply present a black version of a superhero. It deconstructed that superhero, went back to the origin story and offered us a really interesting uh, tool to deconstruct a whiteness um, similar to uh, Watchmen. I, I would argue that another comic, uh, Miss Marvel, with the character Kamala Khan, uh, does a similarly uh, good job of uh, reskinning a superhero, but 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 adding some cultural elements to really make it uh, progressive. Um, so those 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 are two examples that we uh, that we look at in uh, the book uh, that were that were certainly positive and way more effective than some of the first uh, failed attempts in the, in the eighties. Thank you for introducing those to us. Um, I think it's, as I believe Doug said earlier in the interview, um, a really helpful part of the book is how it doesn't try and pick one or the other. It kind of shows both. It shows, okay, here's this idea and here's how it sort of works, but kind of doesn't. And here's how it works more successfully. And, um, you know, allowing that complication to, be really seen as I think a great strength of the book. Um, so obviously I've mentioned already a few things that surprised me reading the book, which, you know, I'm not a comic book expert, so it's probably good that I was surprised. It means I learned things. Uh, you two obviously are both experts. And as you mentioned at the beginning, experts in sort of different areas that contributed to this. So can I ask you each to maybe share sort of a little bit of the behind the scenes? Was there anything uh, one each, please, if possible, uh, that surprised you in the process of writing this book? Uh, yeah, I, I can go first. So the thing that surprised me the most was the the way that different racial groups were portrayed in the very early superheroes. Um, you know, I mean, I'd been expecting that um, the portrayals were going to reflect the way that different racial groups were treated in U.S. society at the time. So I was expecting to see lots of negative stereotypes about black people with other racial groups that were not white being also portrayed negatively, but not as often. And that was not the case at all. Uh, so black people are almost totally absent from early superheroes, uh, superhero comics. 
they're certainly not superheroes. They're also not villains, and they're not even important secondary characters. They appear, I mean, they appear primarily as um, servants, um, you know, in like just brief interactions, you know, so like serve as, you know, like serving a meal to white characters for instance, uh, or, or something like that. And, you know, the, so the, the, the creators, the people making the superhero comics had just decided to avoid them entirely. And I don't totally know why that is. I kind of have some suspicions, but it, uh, you know, um, I think that it's, it has to do again with the in-between position of the, the Jewish artists and writers who are making the comics, um, where on the one hand, they were certainly interested in assimilating into whiteness, but they also were sympathetic to other racial groups um, who were being excluded from whiteness since they, you know, some of that, they were receiving s- some exclusion as well. And so I think that they, you know, they didn't want to indulge in uh, stere- in, in black stereotypes, although I mean, when they did portray black people, I mean, they they didn't say very much. They were just sort of generally deferential. So there were some stereotypes there, but they wanted to avoid, I think, sort of overtly negative stereotypes. Um, but they also were not comfortable with making black characters into heroes or allies, um, you know, because that would be upsetting to the um, to the. I think probably mostly to the gatekeepers of white uh, culture who would have, you know, made a controversy out of it. Um, What you found instead were massively racist portrayals of Asian Americans, which start out as being the Chinese, but then when the U.S., after Pearl Harbor, switches without missing a beat to the Japanese. And this was part of like the yellow peril um, narrative that had been, you know, a, a recurring theme in uh, Western culture since the late 1800s. Uh, and there, like, there were just no guardrails on how racist the portrayals of Japanese or Chinese people could be. It was, I mean, they were shown with like giant claws and fangs and yellow skin. And so, you know, whatever Jewish creators felt about not or may have felt about not wanting to portray black people in America in racist caricatures did not apply to uh, Asians, which is probably partly because the U.S. was at war with them. But there's also, I think, something else going on there as well, um, which might just be that it was something that they didn't have familiarity with. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, um or they were they were more foreign and therefore more easily targetable i'm not i'm not exactly sure what the reason is so i think i mean that you know we certainly did not cover every possible aspect of whiteness in american comics i mean um it was a subject that hadn't been studied that much up to this point i think that we found some important overall structures to it but there's still tons of room for further research here um you know which which makes it still a very important and an interesting um subfield thank you for sharing that joe do you have something to add sure um you know as i say, said before i didn't nearly have the exposure that doug uh did when it when it came to comics, I mean, Doug was reading comics as a as a young teenager, 
and uh, and I and I and I really I really wasn't. Um, I was kind of a literature snob when when I was when I was young, and so you know the hundreds and hundreds of comics that I read over the last I don't know eight eight years since we've been working on the book. I mean, I in some you know at moments I was struck that how awful some of them are you know that that the stories are just you know um you know very kind of silly and uh just 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 kind of bad in 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 every sense of the of the word but but at the same you know at the same time i would discover one that i thought was like the best thing i've ever read you know a literature or comic book or uh whatever you know so my i guess my aesthetic experience the kind of frisson that 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 i experienced um with some comics um was was starkly comparable um to to the sort of uh feeling one gets when somebody eats too many you know candy bars or something that uh that that some of them just were not good so just just the, the breadth of quality of the comics i think was a was a big surprise uh, to me. And then uh, as far as my research, um, you know, when, when, when I was able to trace the, 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 the kind of bandit gunslinger Western figure trope, uh, to reconstruction and make that connection, uh, to whiteness was, was a, it was a really exciting discovery, uh, for me. So, you know, today I think those two things uh, jump out, and and maybe a third would be um, my collaboration with Doug, and that was uh, profound uh, for me in in many ways, and and uh, made me a better writer. And I, I never would have thought that you know collaborating with somebody um, would would make me a better scholar, a better writer. Um, and it certainly did. So, so I think that that was a third surprise that I would add. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, and so for my traditional last question, you've in some ways almost hinted at this, the both of you. Um, but I was wondering, now that this book is actually published, whether together or separately, what are you each working on next? Well, I, I can go with that. Um, so I've been writing a book for some time about serial killers, believe it or not, and um, really looking at the case of Jeffrey Dahmer and situating uh, Jeffrey Dahmer and his crimes within a history of racial violence and libidinal investment in black bodies and the violence uh, of, of those bodies. Um, and, uh, I'm also working on a a true crime, uh, podcast also related to that case, uh, because in my research, I have discovered some, some, some new information about that case. So those are, those are my two kind of primary, uh, uh, research, uh, uh, foci, uh, right now. Amazing. Thank you. What about you, Doug? Uh, yeah, so um, I'm currently working on a uh, introductory textbook for the art history survey course for Oxford University Press, um, which I'm uh, writing with two other co-authors. And so, you know, I mean, I, it's it's a pretty different project, you know, than uh, um, 
than the the book I, I did with Joe. Uh, I mean, it's it's massive. I've I was I initiated the book and have been working on it for uh, several years on my own, um, and I'm currently in the process of bringing co-authors in. But I mean, it's it's massive. It's slated to be uh, five hundred thousand words, and um, I mean the the. the the connecting thread between the two books is that what we're trying to do with this textbook is make it a truly global textbook. Uh, you know, when I was in grad school in the 2000s, I was, um, you know, I was kind of amazed that the textbooks that were in standard use were just incredibly Eurocentric. I mean, it was like the coverage was like, I don't know, 80 20 or 70 30 in favor of, um, Western art. And I was like, I mean, how can these be the only textbooks that are available in the 21st century? It was ludicrous. And I thought, you know, for sure, by the time I started teaching, that there would be some other options out there, but there weren't. So I ended up um, really just out of frustration writing up uh, uh, first, well, first a table of contents and then a book proposal. And then I kind of was lucky enough to be able to present it to some publishers who were interested in uh, getting into the textbook market and including Oxford University Press, which um, which agreed to take on the book. Uh, and so, you know, the the focus traditional art history books kind of break up art history into cultures, which they treat separately from each other. They don't completely ignore influences between them, but they tend to be pretty linear influences. So, you know, they're, they're interested in how, you know, classical Greek and Roman art um, was, you know, replicated in the Renaissance and then in neoclassicism, um, which is a fairly, I mean, you, you really, that's just a sort of, incontrovertible connection, they were much less interested in exploring the way that, for instance, Islamic culture influenced the Renaissance, which was quite large, but was something that the Renaissance itself kind of swept under the rug. And later art historians were only too happy to perpetuate that erasure. So we're trying to bring to light all, you know, the way that, in our view, all culture is produced by borrowing from other cultures, um, you know, whether other regions, other times, or other subcultures that are present within a majority dominant culture. Uh, so that's the theme of the book. And I think that does connect with comic books, although, you know, we're not looking at one medium for the last 70 years. We're looking at, you know, our artistic production since the dawn of humanity up to the present. So it's got a wow. wildly different scope. Well, those both sound like the work you're both doing sounds very interesting. And Dog in particular, that is a massive undertaking. So best of luck uh, on both of those. And I'm sure that listeners are quite interested in your upcoming work. Uh, but obviously, you have to go off and work on it. But until then, listeners can read your current book, which we've been discussing, titled Bandits, Misfits and Superheroes, Whiteness and Its Borderlands in American Comics and Graphic Novels, published by the University of Mississippi Press in 2022. Dr. Joseph Benson, Dr. Doug Singson, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Miranda.